So it's not every day you hear someone ask a really good question. I love it when someone asks a really good question. And then when someone asks the most important question that's ever been asked, or at least the top five, top ten most important question that's ever been asked, it's a really good day. And not only is it a really good day then, it's a really good day when you hear the right answer to the most important question. That's what happens in Acts chapter 16. So it's going to be a really good day as we study God's Word today, because in Acts 16, you hear the most important question, I think, that's ever been asked. I'll go out on a limb. And then you hear the right answer to the most important question. Awesome. Acts 16 is a great, great chapter. That question is, by the way, What must I do to be saved? That is the most important question, or at least the top five, top ten most important question. What must I do to be saved? And then we hear the answer in Acts chapter 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Talk about clarity. I love Acts 16 because it asks the question, it answers the question, and it does a lot more than just that. Acts 16 is also great because you see all different kinds of people being exposed to the gospel and benefiting from the gospel. You see poor people, you see wealthy people, you see people of great status, you see people of mediocre status, you see people of high and low, you see men and women all needing the same Savior None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, maybe since you look like you're still finding Acts 16. It's also a great chapter because it tells us something really, really important about how God works in someone's life to bring them to the point of believing in the gospel. Because it's in Acts 16 that we hear about God, listen to this, opening Lydia's heart to rightly respond to the gospel. Oh, that's important. What what makes the difference? Why, why do some people respond and some people don't respond? Ultimately, salvation is of the Lord and God has to do a work in our hearts. So I hope you found Acts 16, 40 verses. We're going to try to do all 40 of them. If you're just joining us, we're studying the book of Acts. Welcome. Glad you're here. We call it the book of Acts because it's all about actions. About It's about the acts of the early church, the apostles, the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so there's a lot happening, a lot of things going on, a lot of controversies, a lot of dust is still in the air, theologically speaking. And we're watching it settle before our very eyes. Uh, it's, it's an exciting thing to study. And so we're looking at early church history, our church history, our history, our spiritual history by looking at Acts 16. Hope you're ready. Hope you're ready to enjoy it. Hope you're ready to be confronted by it if need be, encouraged by it. Let's go ahead and jump in. Acts 16 verse 1. Paul also, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. It's not the first time because in Acts 14.21 he preached the gospel in Derby, and many people came to believe in that place. So this is round two. This is second missionary journey. There's already a lot of believers there. Then verse one goes on to say, if you'd look there with me, you'll see a disciple was there named Timothy. We like Timothy. Pastors like Timothy. But Christians like Timothy because he's mentioned, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 times, maybe in eight different letters by Paul. He's really important, but he's also important because he's not perfect. Paul's not perfect. There's only one perfect person. That's Jesus, the Savior. But we like Timothy, and he's important because he's a, he, he's a, he's a gap bridger, if you will. The apostles are still alive and kicking. They're still in existence. They play a vital role, but they're going to pass off the scene. And now we have the baton passed to non-apostles, people like Timothy. Oh, that reaches into our era because we don't have apostles, but we do have pastors. We have people like Timothy's, if you will. He's strategic. He's important for us. Read First Timothy, Second Timothy. Let's keep going. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. We learn more about her in Second Timothy 3. But his father was a Greek. Now, perhaps it's was because he's not living anymore. It's not really that important. What's important is to know that he comes from a spiritually mixed marriage. Right? So he's got one believing parent and one unbelieving parent. He's got one believing parent, one unbelieving parent. Okay, that's neither here nor there, but in this case, it's here and there. How about verse 2? 
He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So good reputation in the home crowd and surrounding region. Three says Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and what? Circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a non-Jew. He was a Greek. And at this point in time, everyone is saying, what? But if you were here in Acts 15, you're going, what? This, this seems like all kinds of wrong. This seems like all kinds of wrong because in Acts chapter 15, you have the Jerusalem council. And in Acts chapter 15, it was a huge, major, significant ordeal because some people were saying it's not enough to trust in Christ. It's not enough to believe in Christ. Another way of saying that, uh, you, you must also be circumcised. You must also follow Mosaic law. And we learned about it in Acts 15 to be what? To be saved. You, you cannot be a Christian by only trusting in Christ, they were saying. They were saying salvation is not by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. It's faith, Christ, grace, and you'd better keep the law in order to be saved. And so it's a huge big deal, upsetting the church. I said the theological dust is in the air. The spiritual dust is still in the air. It's a bad thing that they were saying, but it's a good controversy because it was able to be addressed in Acts 15 formally and officially. And where did the church come down on the side of things? Salvation is of the Lord. No, you don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. You don't have to go back to do Old Covenant Mosaic Law to be a Christian. No, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone. Let it be settled. And so, boy, Paul sure has a short memory. No, that's not the idea. He doesn't have a short memory. And and as a matter of fact, bracketing the the very thing we just read, Acts 15, and he's going to go on to insist on reminding everybody of what happened in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. And so inquiring minds like yours say, hmm, why did he have Timothy circumcised then? It's not because he has a bad memory. It's not because now all of a sudden he's waffling on things. He's not doing that at all. I mean, he's so, the apostle Paul is so serious that salvation is only by grace, only through faith, only in the finished work of Christ. I'm glad you're all sitting down. Listen to this. He says in Galatians 5, 12, I wish those who unsettle you by saying faith plus circumcision would emasculate themselves. Man, I'm glad we're not in church or I wouldn't have even read that. Oh, no, it's Galatians 5. So he's radically committed that it's only and ever and always based upon the work of Jesus. Why did he have Timothy circumcised? Because no one's telling me he has to. Nobody is saying you have to do this to be saved. And the Apostle Paul, I'm going to call it, he's flexing. He's being flexible. You know what? It's a, everybody knows about Timothy. He's well known and everybody knows his father's not a Jew and everybody knows he's not circumcised and it's just going to be a distraction. And since we've already settled the matter and I've been utterly clear about this, you know what? Let's not have every time we talk to anybody have this be the issue. Because what we want to always be the issue when we preach the gospel to all of these different territories, we don't want it to be about circumcision. We want it to always and forever be about what? About Christ and about the gospel. And so now that we've settled the matter and nobody's telling me I must, I'm going to do it. He's flexing. He's being flexible because he can be. Because he's made his theological convictions utterly and absolutely and totally and positively clear. But now that it's just going to be a problem, get in the way. We're going to have Timothy circumcised. So it's a non-issue so that the issue of all issues is the issue of all issues. So I think that's what's going on. I know that's what's going on. Um, I don't know anyone who doesn't think otherwise regarding what's going on here. He's being flexible. Kind of, this is a fascinating one. Galatians 2, 3 says, Titus, who was with me, different scenario, different setting, Titus, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Given a certain setting where Titus was, doing ministry in a different context with different kinds of people, didn't do it. 
But knowing of a certain setting in a certain place because of Timothy, and it's, it's gonna always be the issue, and it shouldn't be the issue, let's just, let's just do this. Kind of interesting, I think. Hope you think it's at least a little bit interesting. Paul is, I think, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, being all things to all people. I can be flexible. I'm not going to compromise the gospel, but I can be a Jew if you need me to be a Jew so we can talk about Jesus. And I can be a Gentile if you need me to be a Gentile so we can talk about Jesus because what we really need to do is talk about Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. See, the gospel of salvation is at issue and the other stuff ultimately really doesn't really matter. Doesn't really matter. One Protestant reformer said of this, uh, that he, he called this thing that happened here an indifferent ceremony. It wasn't indifferent under the old covenant, but when it comes to salvation, it's an indifferent ceremony which served only for nourishing love. I don't know a good illustration for this. It's a one-to-one illustration. Um, but I do know that I will be utterly and absolutely clear. This is Reformation Month, so let's talk about the differences between Protestants and Catholics because it's October after all. Uh, I have friends who are Roman Catholic. You probably do too. Some of you have come out of a kind of Catholic background and friends who are Roman Catholic. And so they're going to do Lent um, and they're going to not eat meat on Fridays. And I'm going to eat meat on Fridays. Um, the Lord declared all things clean. There's no biblical basis for Lenten observance. And so uh, I'm going to go ahead and have that filet on Friday to the glory of God and would encourage you to do the same. But, you know, if I'm invited over to a friend's house who's Catholic and we're going to have margarita pizza on Friday because, after all, it's Lent... You know, I don't have to insist on bringing barbecue because after all, I've got theological convictions and I'm a Protestant. And don't you ever forget it. Well, maybe it's not a perfect illustration, but I can flex. I could totally flex. You know what? I, I have real convictions and maybe I'm going to sneak the barbecue in at lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> but the reality is I don't want that to really be the issue when it comes to if you invited me over to your house and I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to you about Christ and show you the love of Christ. I can, I, I love margarita pizza. In principle, all I'm trying to get at is it's flex, not theological compromise about the gospel. But since you do want it to be all about the gospel, you can be flexible. The Apostle Paul here is being flexible. And I believe with all of my heart, if they would have said, Timothy must be circumcised, he would have said, over my dead body. But they have already settled the matter. So I hope that actually helps you in principle try to think through how you maneuver life with people of different kinds of convictions. There's a time and place to make it clear, but we don't always have to make it utterly and absolutely clear if it means we have opportunity to proclaim the good news of salvation. I've been invited to one fish fry, a Roman Catholic fish fry in my life. And somehow our hosts who invited us, they canceled at the last minute, but I still want to go to one. I was, I was so happy to get a go, you know, and I wasn't going to, you know, bring, bring the tri-tip under, underneath, you know, my, my suit coat or something. Because you know what? Maybe I'm going to have a good opportunity here and I'm, I'm not going to be under that yoke of bondage. I'm free from it, but I'm also free to eat grouper. <laughs> okay, we better keep moving or we're going to be here till Lent, uh, which I think is quite a few months away. He's flexing because the gospel's of first importance. How about verse four? As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance. It is binding the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. You see, Acts 15 is on the books. It actually matters. Paul hadn't forgotten. And it's so important that as they're going about visiting the churches, they're communicating what was determined and settled in Acts 15. It is what we always thought it was. Salvation is of the Lord. It is what it, we always thought it was. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. But let's strengthen. Let's make sure that everyone knows. And notice how cool it is to see the positive outcome of this. Verse 5 says, so the churches were strengthened 
They weren't hindered. They weren't oppressed by the conclusion that salvation is of the Lord. They're strengthened. Oh, this is what we thought before. We're actually, in one sense, in God's providence, glad for the controversy. So all the more we could be strong about the clarity of the gospel. I love that. They're strengthened by this in the faith. Then it says in, uh, also in verse 5, and they increased in numbers daily. And I love that. What's the key to church growth? Let's, let's come up with a good church growth strategy. Well, don't talk about theology. Actually, they talked about theology. They talked about a controversy. They talked about clarity so that they could be all the more clear that it's not faith plus what you do. It is faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. And that helped them to be all the more clear in the gospel so that they could clearly preach the gospel. And did you see there, the church is actually growing. And when you understand the gospel better, you can preach the gospel better. And when you preach the gospel with clarity, here the church is growing. Church is growing. So I, I don't mind applying that to, to us either. We're you know always freaking out about church growth strategies and what are we going to do? And how about let's know the gospel and let's know the gospel even better and let's not be terrified of controversies because they will actually help and help they will help in us to speak better English. <laughs> they will actually help us so that we can be clearer. And you know what? People will come to believe in Jesus because we're not muddling around with unclarity about who He is and what He did. I love it that this is what's happening here. Increasing in number, clarity regarding the gospel helps with clarity in proclaiming the gospel. It's certainly happening right here in the early church. And we're seeing that the leadership did what it should do, and that is to be clear about the gospel, bold about the gospel, resilient about the gospel, and communicate the truth about the gospel. Let's keep going. Verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, Having been, so we're in, we're in modern, the modern Turkey area. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Oh, that's interesting. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Hmm, let's keep reading. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. The Holy Spirit, otherwise known as the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Jesus, won't allow them to go where they want to go. What's up with that? I thought the gospel was supposed to go everywhere. I thought it was good to take the gospel to all people. Don't you think so? Absolutely, it's important. Isn't it interesting? It doesn't say how this happened. Was it because of direct revelation? Maybe. Was it because of great persecution? Was it because people wouldn't let them cross? We don't know. But what we do know is they wanted to take the gospel because that's what you want to do. That's what you're supposed to do to these people. Holy Spirit won't allow it, however that happened. And so, okay, we want to take it here because the gospel needs to go to all nations. And however it happened, Holy Spirit says, nope, closed door sometimes we say. Like I said, what's up with that? Well, I do think God wants the gospel to go everywhere. But through these individuals, it can't go everywhere at the same time. And as we're going to see, at this point in time, God wanted the gospel to go somewhere else. And so it can't go here at this time, can't go there at this time, because I want it to go here at this time. God is providentially working. It's cool to see. God is sovereignly working, directing and guiding. Verse 8 says, so passing by Mysia, they went to went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. So to move things over to Macedonia was standing there. Urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Maybe we should stress that for a minute and we'll come back to it. They're asking for help. Come help us. Come help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding, kind of an interesting word, it's a word that has to do with discussion, reflection, deliberation, consideration. So perhaps they had a conversation like, what should we do? What does this mean? We tried to go here and we can't. We tried to go there and we can't. And yet you had this vision. Let's have a discussion and think it through. Apparently, the Lord wants us to take help to Macedonia. Okay. That's what's going on here. And then notice what it said. 
what is said, that God had called us after this deliberation, trying to think through the details, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Might be what you would have done. Can't go there. We wanted to. Can't go there. We wanted to. And now we have some new information. Could it be, it does seem to be that God wants us to go there right now with the gospel. And so they do. I do want you to notice the request from this man in Macedonia is, help, could you come here and help us? And notice they respond by helping, and how do they help? Well, you know, in Macedonia, they had an illiteracy problem. Well, you know, in Macedonia, they had a sanitary problem. Well, you know, in Macedonia, they had political problems. Well, you know, in Macedonia, they had parenting problems. It'd be safe to guess they had a lot of problems, right? It would be safe to guess that in Macedonia, they needed help with a lot of, as we say, the things. I just want you to notice, while they would have needed help with lots of things, because people in a fallen world have always needed help with lots of things, what do the Christians help them with? The gospel. The gospel They're going to help them with the most important thing, the thing that the church is called to help with. There will be other people who will help with the other things. But those other people will never help with that which is eternal because the other groups aren't gospel groups. They're not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I love it that we have this here. Help us! We have so many needs. And so they help them with the gospel. And that gives me a great opportunity to remind you of how bad it is and how dangerous it is for us when sometimes we as the church have what we call mission drift. Right? What what are we called to do? First Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yeah, but they have a lot of other needs. Yeah. So have people throughout the ages. But we're called to preach the gospel. So there are other things. Maybe we can help them with other things. But the church actually, so as an individual, it might be a different thing. I play a lot of different roles. But as the church, what do they do? They preach Christ. They preach the gospel to them. I loved what one commentator said about this. I thought he was right on. It made me so happy. The task that the Lord Jesus has entrusted to the church in her organized capacity is an altogether spiritual one. And I'm going to put my finger there on the quote for just a second because the commentator did, did acknowledge that as individuals, we belong to all kinds of organizations and societies and have different roles in life. And we help people on a lot of different levels. But in, the, his, in his commentary, he says, in her organized capacity, in other words, as the church is an altogether spiritual one to preach Christ, to make disciples and to gather and perfect those disciples through the means that Christ has given his church and by the power of the spirit of Jesus. Are we as the church, how about this? This is the provocative question I have for you too. Are we as the church distracted from or wholeheartedly committed to this pattern of ministry? Well, I think we need to be wholeheartedly committed to this pattern of ministry. They need help with a lot of things. But you know what? We can help you with your eternal destiny. We can help you to understand who Jesus is. Let's make sure we know who we are and what we've been called to do by Jesus. Do they still have the farmer's markets this time of year or have they all shut down? Do you go to the farmer's market to, to get health care? Well, maybe. Sometimes it might be better. Okay, my illustration doesn't work. <laughs> Let's flip it. Do you go to the ER to get your produce? Maybe that's better. I would never go to the ER to get my produce. And if the ER started, you know, selling tomatoes and zucchini and cucumber, I'd think, what have, what have you done? Are you crazy? Do what you do. Don't have, this is ridiculous, I know, ridiculous mission drift. We're called to be resolute, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ. That's what we're called to be and do. A lot of other important things in the world, a lot of other things that people need help with. It's not really our calling, and we see it. Here, I think, 
Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, um, but before we move on, back in verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, and that's going to come up multiple times here. It appears as if Dr. Luke is now including himself. So Luke Acts goes together. It's two volumes, same author. And now it's we have the we factor. And he'll say us and he'll say we. I think in the book of Acts, he does it four different times. And so here on the second missionary journey, Luke, who's writing this historic account, Dr. Luke, MD, is an eyewitness. He's, he's seeing these things happen. And so he's not, uh, he's pretty subtle about it, but we, we definitely see it there. Okay. I think we're on verse, are we on verse 11? Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day, following day, I, I think that's like 125 miles. So they must have had a, a good wind. Um, the following day to Neapolis. That's the port city connected to Philippi. We're going to get there. 12 says, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So now we're, we're in Greece now, in that region, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Macedonia, Philippi, that region, home of Alexander the Great. Well, we better keep going. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we, notice there it is again, went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Something's missing. Usually the Apostle Paul, his normal mode is, let's go to the Jewish synagogue and go preach there and we'll preach the Old Testament to them and we'll show them how it relates to Christ. Well, in Philippi, apparently no Jewish synagogue. Jewish tradition tells us there had to be 10 Jewish males to constitute a synagogue. Don't know if it's true or not, but Jewish tradition says that. And so reading between the lines here, low Jewish population. And so they're going to go out by the river. And here are these monotheists who, who believe uh, in the one true and living God, Yahweh, the, the God of the Jews. And we're going to go there and there are some women there. And so the apostle Paul is going to go and talk to them. How about verse 14? Let's keep going. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. I'm going to put my finger there just for a moment and say, okay, if this is Lydia, seller of super expensive cloth and clothing, she must have made money. So she, we would be right to conclude she's of some affluence. Uh, we're going to see that she has a sizable house where they will set up shop in just a little while for ministry. Affluence. Significant player when it comes to socioeconomic side of things. And I think that's important because we're seeing so many different kinds of people. It also says in verse 14, who was a worshiper of God. So she's a monotheist. It does, we don't have an indication that she's a Jewish proselyte, that she buys, that she, she's fully adopted all of the manners and customs. But she said, you know what? The Jews are right about God. There is only one true and living God, and I don't buy the paganism. It doesn't seem to make sense to me to carve a God yourself out of stone. You made it. What's up with that? Or, or to carve a God yourself out of wood, and then when it gets too cold, you burn your God. What's up with that? Okay. So Lydia's the thinker. <laughs> she's, she's, she's believing in Yahweh. She's believing in the one true and living God. But now, how about verse 14? Maybe, maybe the best part of the chapter. Oh, it's at least one of the best parts. 14 goes on to say, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's one of the most favorite declarations of people who believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's probably one of the least favorite of those who don't believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. But guess what? God is sovereign in salvation. She responds. She responds positively because the Lord opened her heart to respond positively. This is why we say salvation is of the Lord. This is why we pray for people's salvation. And we don't just try to manipulate them into believing. The Lord has to open people's heart. The Lord opened Lydia's heart. It's wonderful. It's, it's strange. It's foreign to us. It's not how we do things. It's not what we can see with our own eyes. The Lord opened her heart. And you've got to know, if you don't already know, the Bible speaks a lot about people's hearts. 
And the last thing you'd ever want to say is, well, God knows my heart. <laughs> That's the problem. Okay. The Bible says things like the heart is wicked and deceitful. Jeremiah 17. The Bible says we have hearts of stone like in Ezekiel and we need God to give us a heart of flesh. So we have uh, all these negative descriptions. Our hearts are hard. They need to be soft. Our hearts are stone. They need to be of flesh. Our hearts are wicked. They need to be made clean. And there's all different ways of saying it here. She has a closed heart, if you will. Whichever image you're using, they're, they're all negative because of sin. And so what led to a heart change? Because we need a heart change. God opens her heart. She responds positively. And so we say, praise God. We say, God does this. Now, this is a great opportunity for us to, to gain some clarity here regarding on how evangelism works and how gospel ministry works. Uh, so let's connect some dots here because we want to be good at proclaiming the gospel. We want to go, be good at understanding this because it's part of what we're called to do as far as Christians are concerned and the church. So if you would, think of our passage. Think of Acts thirteen forty eight because we were just there not too long ago. And then maybe I'll ask you to think of Romans chapter 10. What's what's the anatomy of conversion? Um, uh, if we're to take things piece by piece, how does this work? How does salvation occur in a person's life? Well, if we went back to Acts thirteen forty eight, it says at the end of that verse. Listen carefully, if you would. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So I'm gonna. Think of that passage and that statement and our Acts 16, 14 and start putting things together. So what comes first on the chronology of things? Appointment unto eternal life. That would come first. God's decree, Ephesians 1, other texts as well. Appointment unto eternal life. In Acts 13, 48, then it's believed, but something comes before believing. If we go to Acts 16, 14. If we're putting the pieces together. So appointment unto eternal life, number one, if you will. Number two, what happens next? God opens their heart. God does something internally. God brings, to use John 3, regeneration or Titus as well. God has to open the heart, soften the heart, give a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. And then that leads to believing. That's how, that's how, how all of this works. And then if you connect the dots and put the pieces together a little bit more as we construct all of these things, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. I don't want to go too fast, but I want to make sure you understand this. Appointment unto eternal life. In Ephesians 1, it would say that's before the foundation of the world, before time as we even know it. Appointment unto eternal life. Opening of the heart, believing in the gospel. How does God bring this about? Through the proclamation of the gospel. So God uses means. God uses the means of Omaha Bible Church. You as a Christian, me as a Christian, all who proclaim the good news of salvation, Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what do we do? We preach Christ to everyone. We preach Christ to rich people like Lydia. We preach Christ to poor people. We preach Christ to the Philippian jailer. He's the mediocre guy. What a bummer to call him that. He's just run-of-the-mill kind of guy. We preach Christ to everyone knowing some have been appointed unto eternal life. And knowing that God is the one who has to open the heart. It can't be us. Through 700 stanzas of just as I am, the buses will wait. Altar call. No, it's not in the Bible. Some have been appointed unto eternal life. God has to open the heart, which will bring them to believe in the gospel. What's our role in all of this? Preaching Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing God uses means through the word of Christ. It's important that we know this stuff, actually, so that we can be faithful at proclaiming, but not manipulating, but faithful at proclaiming, not being passive. Not being passive. Hope that helps. It helps me. It helps me as get the, get the pastoral obligation off my shoulders. You heard it here. You should know this. And so should I. 
And what I'm giving you, by the way, isn't something I just came up with last night after a strange meal. Okay? I'm not just making this stuff up. We're going, looking at the verses. It is October, so it is Reformation Month. What I'm giving you is a very reformation oh understanding of how this works. The anatomy of conversion, if you will. And when we don't have this right, we're going to either be totally passive and not do anything, or we're going to be totally manipulative and we'll have a bunch of converts. And one thing we don't want, Omaha Bible Church, is a bunch of converts that are our converts. Okay, let's move on. We are on verse 15. What happens when someone believes the gospel? Here it is. How about verse 15? And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So she's not only prominent, she's assertive. And uh, they take her up on her offer, apparently, from what we see. If you have questions about household baptisms, hold that question because we're going to learn even more. So hold on to that idea. Let's go to verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, so they're going back to the, back to the river, if you will. Uh, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. The Greek word is, she had a spirit of python. She had a snake spirit in the ancient first century world associated with the god Apollo. But she has this python, snake, serpent, sinister, and other things that start with S, spirit, okay? She's not in a good place. It doesn't say she's demon-possessed, but that's the idea using synonyms. So she is oppressed. She is possessed, okay? She is troubled. She's in a bad place, not only uh, because she's a slave girl, this young girl, and so she's in bondage because she's owned by other people. That's problematic, low socioeconomically, but also demon-possessed, also having a spirit of divination. But notice what it says, and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. So verse 17 says, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. All kinds of weird going on there, right? It would seem, you know, contrary to Zeus, they proclaim Yahweh. He's the one true and living God and proclaiming the way of salvation. Sounds pretty good. Sounds like she's saying what's true, which sometimes happens. Interestingly enough, it, it frequently happens with the demonic in the New Testament. It's amazing how close to the truth they are sometimes. Verse 18 says, And this she kept doing for many days. It's like the demonic can't resist. Right? We see, we saw it in Jesus' earthly ministry and earlier on. And it's just like, what, what is it with these d- demon-possessed people? I don't know. Paul, having become greatly annoyed. Apostolic annoyance. That sounds like a good book title. At least a podcast. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, can you imagine? Turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. All kinds of things there to see. We won't take a lot of time to try to unpack it all. But Paul is showing his true apostolic colors, that he has this unique power that's not afforded to everyone. It resembles Christ, so it's affirming his apostolic uniqueness. That's going on there. Um, Why did Paul tell her to stop? I mean, she seems to be telling the truth, and isn't all press good press? Apparently not. Um, I mean, we have to we have to guess, right? He he doesn't like being associated with demon possessed girls. <laughs> it doesn't really help the credibility factor. Um, and and some of you are friends with people who are in cults that call themselves Christian, and you know that it's not actually Christian. And so when they always want to sound like you in mixed company, if you're like me, I want to talk about the weather sports or anything else because I don't want other people to think what I believe is what my Mormon friend believes because they're different religions, not denominations. 
And so I, he doesn't like the bad press here, just using that as one kind of example. I don't want my message to be illegitimized, if you will, because of her. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows what she's up to. How about let's keep going because we need to. Verse 19 says, but when her owner saw that, and let's pretend here for a moment, when her owner saw that she was set free from demonic oppression, they killed the fatted calf and had a big party because isn't it good to be good? And they rejoiced and bowed the knee and came. It's not it. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So we know what they really were interested in. It's not the the good of humanity. It's what oftentimes happens in its their own pockets. 20 says, And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Right? They're, they're doing this most high God stuff of verse 17. And we, as sophisticates, have many gods. In fact, we have a really important one whose name is Caesar. And so we, we, we've got to do something about this. We know they actually are concerned about their money, but they're trying to make it a, somehow, you know, public kind of good, a religious kind of good, uh, which is kind of interesting. Okay, verse 22 says, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders, to, so now they're shamed in that way, and order, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're not wanting to help the oppressed girl. They just want to keep things status quo. And so this happens. Verse 25 then, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's kind of interesting to think about. So there they are, oppressed. There's been injustice. They've been treated unjustly, if you prefer. They're suffering. They've been beaten. Silas maybe says to Paul, hey, how about if we sing some hymns? And Paul's like, I don't really feel like singing hymns. I'm in a lot of pain. Well, maybe it would remind you and me that God is sovereign. He was sovereign when we were outside of prison. And wasn't it cool when he opened Lydia's heart? Sovereignty of God, but he's also sovereign now that we're in prison. And Paul says, okay, let's sing. Okay, I embellished all of that. But they're, they're singing things that are true. God is good. God is faithful. And he's faithful when we're outside the prison. He's faithful when we're in the prison. And so they're, they're doing this very thing. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So they're going to take his life if he can't keep these prisoners safe. And so he thinks it's more dignified to take his own life instead of being shamed publicly and executed. 28 says, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. I'm going to ask you, what's he afraid of? He was afraid of being public, publicly shamed and then executed. So he's going to kill himself first, beat him to the punch. And now that they're there and waiting, he's afraid. Is he afraid of them? Is he afraid of their God? 30 says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from your God. Saved from judgment. Saved from having to pay for my own sins. He knows what they've been proclaiming. The slave girl's been all about it. What must I do to be saved? How, how do I rightly respond to you and to your gospel proclamation? What must I... That, that's the most important question that anybody could ever possibly ask. It's the one that will have ramifications forever. What must I do to be saved? What would you say to this person? What must I do to be saved? Notice they don't say desire God and then desire God more. They don't say love God, although they, they, he should. They don't say clean up your life. 
They don't say quit your job because you work for the Roman government. They don't say do this, that, or the other thing. They don't say do more, try harder. I hope you would not say anything that even sounds anything like that unless you're purposely preaching law to someone. Thirty-one says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust in the work of another and you will be saved from the wrath of God. You won't get what you deserve if you trust in Christ which means to believe in Christ, which means to rest in Christ. And you say, how could that be? That kind of faith doesn't seem very powerful. You're right, it's not. The object of faith is powerful. It's Him. It's not about their faithfulness. It's about the power of Jesus to save. And so what do you do? If He did it all, you rest in Him. He's your substitute. He carries you. It's all the work of the Lord. And so he can say, you will be saved if you rest in him. Well, that doesn't sound like he's a very good person, right? Hopefully he'll become a better person. But that's not how salvation works. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Once you do penance, no. Once you clean up your life, no. Jesus is the Savior. And then he says in verse 31, you and your household. Why would he say you and your household? Well, if we keep reading enough of the data in the book of Acts and you put all of the pieces together, it's because the household is going to hear the gospel and they're going to believe in the gospel and they're going to rejoice as a result. And guess what? That's how the gospel works. We've been seeing it since Acts 2. And so if you only want to cherry pick, you can say, well, we're just going to isolate this or isolate the other household kinds of things. You'd say, well, automatically, if I'm a Christian, everyone in my house is a Christian. Well, not so fast. When you look at all of the, our broader data, guess what? Everybody hears the God. It is for you in your household. Absolutely. Salvation is for you in your household because salvation is for everyone who believes. Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. He, he starts here with you, goes a little bit broader, goes a little bit broader, and goes as broad as you could ever imagine. Anybody and everyone who believes in Jesus, the gospel is for them. 41 says, Acts 2, so those who received his word. Oh, he narrowed it a little bit. In his household... And those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what I'm encouraging you to do is to look at a bit more of the picture and you say, yeah, it's for everybody and anybody, you and your children, everyone in your household, including those who might be working for you in the first century. Those who received his word. 32 says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They spoke the gospel to him. How about this? 32. And to all who were in his house. So let's not make it ridiculous. They only spoke it to him and everyone else was off doing something else. But they're all saved and they all got baptized. No. He spoke the word of the Lord to them, to him, and to the rest of them. Okay. 33 says, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. And he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. Oh, that's what believers do. That he had believed in God. Okay, let's wrap it up. Let's do 35 to 40. But when it was day, the magistrate sent police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Ooh, right? I think Paul is doing this because he loves justice and righteousness and goodness and truth. He's also doing it for the sake of the gospel and those who will remain after him. 
38 says, and we're going to wrap this whole thing up, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. In Greek, that means they took their own sweet time. It doesn't actually mean that in Greek, but it's kind of interesting to think. Yeah, we're going to go, but we're Roman citizens, and so we're going to tend to some other things first. They weren't intimidated. They were actually emboldened, which is pretty interesting. Let's, let's end on this note. Let's end by being impressed with all of these different kinds of people. Same gospel. So if we start thinking about the people involved in Acts chapter 16, we have the slave girl, low end and embroiled in paganism. It doesn't say she got converted, but she certainly benefited for, from the gospel. We don't know the end of the story, but she's there. We have Lydia, who is wealthy and influential, who, given the fact that she was from a different region, she would have looked different from the rest of them. We have the jailer who was employed by the Roman government. All kinds of sinners need a savior. I guess we should also even think about the apostle Paul. He's involved here. Let's think about Timothy. Timothy comes from a mixed marriage. We also have Luke, who's an MD. All different kinds of people, same gospel. We preach Christ knowing that the Lord has to open people's hearts, but we can see he opens the hearts of all different kinds of people because there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is the savior of all ethnos. That's Matthew chapter 28, to make disciples of all nations, all different ethnicities, all different kinds of people. Same savior, it's Christ. I love Acts 16 for what it teaches us about salvation and it should help us as a church. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for all of these 40 verses. Thank you for what has happened in history and we're certainly thankful for first century history. Number one, so we don't have to repeat it, but also number two, so that we can learn from it. Help us to be bold as Christians. Help us to be humble as Christians. Help us to be living for the glory of Christ, not to earn our salvation, but because Christ has earned it for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.